This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. Welcome. I'm Susan Alexander in computer science. And <laughs> yeah, this is the this is the one night we get to cheer for ourselves, guys. <laughs> Um, I'm, it's my honor to introduce Ruth Farmer at, at our first, Whitworth's first speaker and artist event this year. And isn't that cool that it's so related to computer science and engineering? Okay, so um, Ruth has a history of initiating innovative programs. She served in notable positions and she has a number of awards, national awards. Um, her education, she has a Bachelor of Arts from Lewis and Clark College and an MBA from University of Oxford Said Business School in Social Entrepreneurship. Um, some of her positions, so she currently serves in uh, Computer Science for All Consortium and she's very active in that. She's been, she served as Senior Policy Advisor for Tech Inclusion in the Obama White House Office of Science and Technology, again related to the Computer Science for All initiative. Um, she was previously Chief, Chief Strategy and Growth Officer and K-12 Alliance Director at the National Center for Women and Information Technology. She's started up a number of programs, and if you'll notice, these are all over the board, all kinds of, this is what struck me, different, different walks and different kind of creative things. Aspirations in computing, tech, now I don't know how to pronounce this, Technologicas, <laughs> Campaign for Latinas, Aspire IT Outreach Program, Intel Design and Discovery Program, and Lego Robotics for Girl Scouts. So these are all different approaches from different avenues. And some of her awards, she's got a number of prestigious awards. 2012 Chair of Computer Science Education Week, 2013 White House Champion of Change for Technology Inclusion, and 2014 Anita Borg Institute Award for Social Impact, and 2015 Education UK Alumni Award for Social Impact. She's passionate, she's very passionate about integrating um, innovative business strategies and, that result in social change. I think in, in talking to her, I was most struck by her creative ideas and practical avenues, lots of different avenues, um, which I think is pretty unique, and her energy and her commitment. So please join me in welcoming Ruth Farmer to Whitworth. Hello, Whitworth. Am I on, on, am I on camera? Good. Okay, I'll step out here so you can see me uh, standing behind that thing. So um, who here is a computer science or math major? Okay, and what are the other majors in the room? Just yell it out. Education. Yes. Okay. okay, great. And who's from Washington State? Okay, a lot from Washington. Anybody from the East Coast? Oh, wow. California? Okay, great. It's always good to know who your audience is. Um, so as um, Dr. Alexander said, I am uh, Ruth Farmer, and um, GLAM is my operating system. I will tell you a story about that sticker. So you guys all heard of Computer Engineer Barbie? 
and the big blow up in 2014 about the super sexist book thing. So back in 2012, when they launched Computer Engineer Barbie, they every year Barbie gets a new career. She's had 129 careers. And so the, the Computer Engineer Barbie is a limited edition thing because every year there's a new Barbie with a new career. So in that year, it was January, and somehow I got connected to somebody who worked at Mattel. And they kind of leaked it to us that it was like computer engineer Barbie and journalist Barbie were like neck and neck, like for the vote, because it was a student, like community voting thing. And so we kind of unleashed the world of women in technology to vote for computer engineer Barbie and like pushed her over the hump. So they, they launched computer engineer Barbie and that was one of the stickers they made. I, I, I think I actually scanned that sticker for this picture. And, um, and then a couple years later, there was this huge uproar because a mom had picked up the companion I Can Be Computer Engineer Barbie book that came with it. And in this book, Barbie is building a game. And Skipper says, can I play it? She's like, no, I just have the ideas. I need the boys to come code it for me. And then she proceeds to infect her computer with a virus and act like a helpless female until it's a huge disaster. And so this mother was super upset about this book. It was published in 2012. It was incredibly sexist. And um, she put it up on Twitter, and people went crazy, and it became this huge thing, and Mattel's in trouble. And my good friend, Casey Fiesler, who's a, pr a professor of human-computer interaction at Boulder, she was doing her PhD in procrastinating, and she saw this online, and she's like, somebody's going to remix this book. Might as well be me. And she stayed up all night, and she blanked out all the pages and rewrote the book as sort of like a feminist hero story in which Barbie collaborates with both the boys and the girls to build a really awesome game, and it's this whole thing. And the next, she put it up online, and the next day she had 50,000 hits on her blog. And then um, she uh, ended up on NPR, so she's like, my internet famousness because of computer engineer Barbie. So kind of interesting. But I do, like, people get upset about Barbie, and they're like, Barbie has disproportionate body, etc. But I feel like if little girls are going to play with dolls anyway, at least they can play with engineers and scientists and not just fashion dolls, etc. So I, I have mixed feelings about Barbie, but I think they're trying and they're moving forward. So, uh-oh, I no longer have, oh, sorry, maybe it's that. My um, computer is trying to update, that's always an issue. Okay, so, um, I am currently the chief evangelist for csforall.org, so the Computer Science for All Consortium, which is this organization that we spun out um, to lead the computer science for movement, be, movement beyond the Obama administration. And um, I did a TED Talk, which I think um, some of your faculty may have watched, and that's um, Yvonne Cagle, who is a flight surgeon. She's a surgeon who then became an astronaut. So. Um, anybody can apply to the astronaut corps if you decide you want to be an astronaut, totally do it. You have to do it before you're 35. They won't let you in after 35. And almost all astronauts are engineers now. So if you want to be an astronaut, an engineering background is really good. And because they want you to do stuff in space. They want you to do experiments and things. So engineers and scientists. Um, so I've done a lot of things. Um, she talked about it in my bio. And mostly I've been spending the last 15 to 16 years as a professional feminist rabble-rouser rabble for STEM education and um, trying to do something about the fact that we have 
been playing the game with about half of our brains tied behind our back as a country in terms of leveraging all of the minds of the young people in our country. If you actually add up all of the people left out of computer science, so women, underrepresented minorities, people with disabilities, that's 70% of the population. It's like, why would you try to win at any game with 70% with on the bench? It doesn't make any sense. So really interested in fixing that. Um, that's my information. If you ever want to reach me, you can tweet me and so on. Um, so I did win this awesome award from the British Council. And um, if you do end up going to school in the UK, one of the things they do is they award notable alumni within a certain number of years of graduation. So I, the guy on the left is on his fourth biotech startup. He's like 30. And the guy on the right is the um, public defender assigned to detainees at Guantanamo Bay. And so I was in good company. But it was really cool. I got to go to England. I got to go to 10 Downing Street. And I got to have dinner with Jimmy Chu. And I will tell you, his wife sat through the entire reception. Her feet hurt. And I disagree with this idea that you can somehow build comfortable shoes with four-inch heels. It is not possible. If Jimmy Chu's wife is not comfortable, none of us are comfortable. So, but he was very interesting and very nice. Built his first shoe for his mother when he was seven years old and has been making shoes ever since. So clearly a passion for him. So I've been doing this for a long time. I was at the National Center for Women in IT. How many of you have heard of NCWIT? Good. How many of you have heard of Aspirations in Computing? Okay, so if you're ever looking for data, statistics, resources on women in technology, bias, any of those things, go to their website. They have great stuff for men about how to interrupt bias, how to be a male advocate for women in tech, and how to be a supervisor for other people that are diverse and in an inclusive way. So I highly recommend all of their resources. And everything they do is based on research. So it's not just people like putting up a sign and being like, I can talk about diversity. It's actual scientists studying it. Um, Aspirations in Computing, which is actually how I got to this room today, because Caitlin Duarte, who many of you may know, um, was a member of the Aspirations in Computing program. So who's a female studying computer science? OK. Any one of you can go to aspirations.org, and you can join if you are a college woman in computer science. What you get out of that is you get to be part of a private secret group of other women in computer science. There's about 10,000 of them now. And you get me as your personal fairy godmother for your career for pretty much forever. Um, you also get access to all kinds of other great resources. But um, there is an award, which is available. Applications are open now, where you submit a technical project. And the prize is a $10,000 check and a trip to the NCWIT Summit in May. And um, last year, they awarded six $10,000 prizes and 12 runners up at $2,500. And you can just take a project you're already doing in college and submit it. You do have to make a video. So you might have to get one of these video folks to help you. Um, so I know every one of these young women. I know where they all work now and what they're all doing with their lives. And um, there's many, many more of them. And what I have learned through working with them for the last 10 years is that it's pretty incredibly powerful to encourage people, to just simply encourage people. And I'll talk about that more later. But it's one of those things that you don't realize that certain populations are not being encouraged. And others are. And when you take someone who's at a deficit of not being encouraged or pushed, and you give that to them, it can make huge progress at a very, very low cost. 
So um, Tecnologicas, which you were having trouble pronouncing, is a program I launched. Um, anyone Latino in this room? Latinos? Yay! Okay. So Tecnologicas is a campaign on Univision um, for Latinas and their families about careers in technology. If you are a Latina in technology, you can join and become a Tecnologica ambassador. And um, it plays on Univision. It's on YouTube. It's on iTunes. And there are these beautifully produced films and documentaries and, and um, TV spots about Latinas in, in their careers. And there's women at NASA. There's women at EMC, different companies. It's really cool. There's one uh, couple girls from Microsoft. So um, those are great for when you're doing any kind of outreach with um, Latino students because you can really show them this is what a Latino in tech looks like. Now, when we started that campaign, my goal was I was so tired of people being like, who's the black Mark Zuckerberg? Who's the Latino Bill Gates? And I'm like, we need to just have those people exist. They need to know that Madeline Martinez is a person who has four patents and works at EMC. And so one of the, the young women, this one on the far bottom right, is, um, is actually Natalia Rodriguez, who didn't study computer science until she was a junior in college. She switched from dance to computer science as a junior, powered down, got herself an internship at Fast Company, um, and then um, launched right into a startup. Now she is doing data visualization with Neil deGrasse Tyson at the Museum of Natural History in New York and outreach to Latinas for the museum. So really, really cool pathway. And so great resource, and I love it. Um, so I, she talked a little bit about Aspire IT. Um, this is a program where I basically said, why don't I just give young women money to teach other young women? So we give out grants of $3,000 each to any young woman in tech who wants to teach other young women. And launched now, this is old data, we've now launched um, 600 programs and served 10,000 girls since 2012. And um, that's super fun. So that's sort of my legacy, I would say. Um, so what have I learned in these 16 years? A lot. Um, encouragement is free. Absolutely free. It costs you virtually nothing to tell someone that they are good at something or they did something well or that they have potential. It costs you nothing. But it actually does a tremendous amount. So I had this roommate who had graduated from DePau and she was working at Lockheed Martin. She was young, like early 20s. And I asked her, I was like, you're my target market. Like, how did you get here? How, what, what got you here in computer science? She said she'd entered DePau as a freshman wanting to study economics. And for whatever reason, she couldn't get into the course load she wanted. And so she ended up in CS 101. And her professor um, was Gloria Townsend, who some of you may know from ACM. And she took her first exam. And Gloria wrote on the exam, great job. Do you have a major? Come see me. She had never considered majoring in CS, never thought it was a pathway for her. But Gloria took like two seconds to write that on her exam. And so you really have no concept of how much it could mean for you to just validate somebody else. Because how many of you feel like insecure about your tech abilities? Okay, so you guys know what imposter syndrome is, right? So you feel like you're faking it and everybody else knows more than you do and so on. Um, everyone feels that way. So if you're feeling that way, I bet somebody else is. So it doesn't hurt to just like give somebody a little high five when they're doing things right. 
Um, it really, really works to recognize people. One of the things that I have found as a strategy, should you ever need to get things done in a difficult environment, um, sometimes if you recognize someone for doing something a little bit well, then they have to live up to your praise and do it much better in the future. So um, I was working with this teacher who had attempted to do a game development challenge with her school district for CS Ed Week. You guys heard of CS Ed Week? December? Yay! Okay. So she wanted to do this game development challenge and she was trying to get these principals at the elementary school to work with her and they were like, no, go away, we don't know this, leave us alone. And she's like, I had to go around them, direct to the teachers, it was a lot of work, how do I get these principals to help me? I'm like, you take the one principal who did well, who did anything to help you, and you go to the school board meeting and you like stand up and like shower him with praise for being a thought leader in, and a supporter of computer science. And then every other principal is gonna be like, well, I, I could be a thought leader, I could be a supporter. And they will step up. FOMO was an incredibly powerful thing. And um, so it, it just works, I'm telling you. But recognizing people and thanking them is really, really powerful. Um, collective efforts, everybody knows that it works better when we all work on it. And, um, and I really, really learned that in DC. One of the things we had in the White House, as I was at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, but then I had a team of people across 19 federal agencies. Every agency had a person designated to work on CS for All. So we were working on CS for All in the Department of Energy, in the Department of Defense, the National Science Foundation, the AmeriCorps folks at Corporation for National Service. So all across the government, we had this team that was working on figuring out ways we could use the government infrastructure or pull levers to get computer science into our schools. So it really, really works better and faster when you use a team. Um, has any of you guys heard about the new AP Computer Science Principles course that came out this year, okay, last year? So how long do you think it took to create that course? Give me a guess. Ding, nine years. They started developing that APCS course in 2008, 2007-8, so a little less than nine years. It's really hard to add something new, to change a system, right? So it took all these years and $20 million of NSF investment in curricula, in um, research, in testing and figuring out what is the best way to teach an inclusive computer science course and the lay public probably thinks, oh, you can just change a test or you can just change a course, but you can't because you have to get schools to adopt it and then teachers have to get certified to teach it and there's this whole system. And so there's two really important things about systems. One, that they are very hard to change and once you change them, it's hard to go back. So it's really important that we have an AP Computer Science course that is inclusive that welcomes all students, and that's part of a system that kids who go to college take EP courses, hence we need that to exist. But it was also really important that we took the time to build it in a way that it would be inclusive, because if you build something that's not inclusive, then it's stuck out there in the system for a long, long time. So one of the things that keeps me up at night is like we're all, as a country, like computer science, we have to have it, let's do it, do it, do it. But if we do it badly, it's gonna be really crappy for like 40 years because you're putting it into a really established sticky system. 
So I keep saying like, let's think about rigor, let's think about inclusion, and let's think about the design of this thing now so that we're not in 10 years going, oh crap, this is terrible and it's not working. We have to really be deliberate because once you build something into a system, it's there for a long time. It's like trying to move a steamship. Um, inclusion has to be really, really, really intentional. Um, and I can talk more about this and I can talk about this all day long, but the world itself is not neutral. People think it's neutral. But the environment we exist in is not neutral. It's mostly white and it's mostly male and it's foundation of being built. So you have to actually think through the inclusion part. You can't just be like, well, girls are just not interested in this or minorities are just not interested in this. If, if they're not interested in something that you've built, then chances are you didn't build it right. And a perfect example of that, so any of you interested in cybersecurity? Anybody done like Cyber Patriot or any of those challenges? Okay, so a few years ago, I'm talking to the Cyber Patriot folks and they're like, yeah, we're working really hard, we've got 8,000 kids, it's really great, and our numbers of girls are growing. It's like, oh really, how many girls do you have? And they're like, 479. It's like, out of 8,000, you have 479 girls out of 8,000. Half the human population and you've managed to get 6% you know, or 5%. And they're like, well, they're just not interested. She's not interested. So I spent some time with their marketing materials and so on. The background of their website was the crosshairs of a gun. Okay, everything was like guns, eagles, flags, like, do you want to defeat the enemy? Do you want to be number one? Yay! Most cybersecurity competitions look like this. Because they're designed by retired generals, right? Who were like, this is awesome, totally appeals to me. And so finally, whenever I talk to folks in this sector, I'm like, look, if any of the marketing materials for your youth program are appealing to you in any way, they are bad. And they will not be appealing to students, especially to girls and minorities. So like, the bottom line is, if, if the messaging isn't right, you cannot blame the recipient of the message for not getting it. And so... Um, one of the things that they did change, and they've made massive changes, and they now have way, way better numbers of both women and minorities, is, um, is talking about cybersecurity not in terms of winning, but in terms of protecting. So when you say, my work keeps the energy grid safe for the United States, my work keeps our food supply safe, I make it possible for you to bank online, etc., that resonates with a lot more people than I can be number one and I can defeat the enemy. So it's all about the messaging and how you sell the discipline. I also learned that Americans are awesome. One of the things that we did in the White House all the time, which was super cool, uh, there's this thing called Champions of Change. So like every two weeks, they would be like, Champions of Change for Economic Opportunity in Rural America or something. And people would get nominated from all over the country. They'd pick about 12 people and they'd fly to D.C. and they'd have this whole thing and, and meet with people in the White House and do a bunch of stuff. I was a champion of change for tech inclusion in like 2013. But what was so cool about it was we built this huge group of American activists. And now we have a Facebook group of all the champions of change from all over the nation. And so they're in every sector, but we're all people who try to get things done and do things. And um, it was just so cool the way we could pull in people who were doing great stuff and solve things. My favorite example of that is um, any of you guys into big data, that sort of thing. So there was this thing um, one of my colleagues did called the Police Data Initiative. So we had all those shootings and people were really upset after Ferguson. And 
So they brought all these police chiefs into the White House and then they brought data scientists. And they were like, would you open your data and let us look at it and figure out if there's a pattern here? And so some of the cities did. Some of the police chiefs said, sure, you can look at my data. And I think it was Jacksonville, Florida, realized that a huge number of arrests that they were making each year were people who were mentally ill, like 7,000 people a year. And you think about the economic cost to a police department to arrest, incarcerate, control a person, and then release them back out into the public, and then they get rearrested. So they instead took a portion of the jail, turned it into a psych ward, taught their officers to be able to triage for mental illness, and they dropped that down to 500 arrests of people with mental illness. Everyone else was tracked into the mental health system and treated. And if you think about, like, what does an arrest on your record do to your life? If you're already struggling with mental illness and struggling to succeed, it can really derail your life. You've got the fees, the court, the inability to get a job because you've got a record, all of those things. So by looking at the data and seeing it at a meta level, you can understand where there's maybe a problem in the system. Um, another really interesting thing, my first week on the job, they had a hackathon for foster care. So they brought all these um, coders and data scientists and the foster care people from different states in, and they were looking at data patterns in foster care. And like, How many times does a kid move in their foster system? What does that do to their success rate long term, to their educational process? Um, all of that that you can discover when you start to pull all the data into one place. So I think data science is like the wave of the future. There's going to be so much going on in that as we collect more and more data as a society and we're able to identify problems and fill them. So we actually did have White House cupcakes. They actually look like that. Um, for my, my big event, I had to go through this crazy process to actually Actually, buying anything in the White House was really hard, but I go through this crazy process to order these cupcakes. And so I order them, and they're like um, $60 a dozen or something. And they don't taste very good because by the time they print that thing on them, they've been sitting around for a while. They're kind of dry. But everybody was thrilled with the White House cupcakes. And um, so right before they were going to fill my order, I get a phone call from the Navy mess. So the Navy does the food at the White House. And he's like, did you really mean to order 1,500 dozen cupcakes? I was like, no, 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 15 dozen. So I almost spent my entire year's budget on one order of cupcakes, which would have been like a mountain of cupcakes into the White House. So fortunately, that did not happen. Um, I don't know how fast the Navy mess could have made those cupcakes. Um, other little known fact about the White House, never mail anything edible to anyone at the White House. Because the mail doesn't actually come to you. The mail goes to an outside facility where it is investigated for threats and smelled by dogs and put in a tank. And so they have this system where, say somebody sent you some fudge, right, for Christmas. About six weeks later, you would receive the box without the fudge with a photograph of the fudge that had been in the box. So people all the time thought they'd be really nice and send like cookies or chocolate or whatever to you at the White House, but every single time, I'm sure the Secret Service was just eating it and then sending us this picture of whatever it was. So all of us had lined up on our wall like photos of all the gifts that we actually never received because they were in some off-site location. So it was pretty funny. So don't bother mailing any items to people at the White House. 
Um, so you probably have heard of the CFS for All initiative. In January of 2016, President Obama um, announced during his State of the Union that he thought that computer science was a fundamental skill that all Americans should learn. And then two weeks later, he had a, um, a national um, video call or video presentation to the nation about um, computer science. And um, the entire community was abuzz about this thing behind the scenes until it happened, and we were super excited. And he asked Congress to invest $4 billion in money for computer science. Um, you probably know that Congress didn't actually pass the budget until April of this year, so nothing really moved there. Um, but it sig did a lot of signaling to the nation and to um, the community that this was something that was really important. So a lot of other federal resources were deployed from the Defense Department to um, the National Science Foundation, but also in the community. So. Um, for example, has anyone seen the Powerpuff Girls episode about coding? So Cartoon Network, he has. So Cartoon Network stepped up and said, we are going to integrate storylines about computer science into the shows that children watch when they are young so that they have a different view of who is technical and what is technology. So um, that's been happening. Disney's been doing that. Um, there was like a Star Wars Hour of Code. But also companies put up money to pay for teacher training. All kinds of resources came to bear through this initiative. And that was pretty much my full-time job, was working with the community to help drive adoption of computer science at every level around the nation. And this was when he uh, wrote his first line of code with some kids. And then right here in this pile, so there's these like trading cards. Those are the patent office famous inventor trading cards. And um, I have to say that the graphics are not that attractive. Like if I was Stephanie Qualick, I would not like that drawing of myself. It's kind of a caricature. But you can get these and they have like, it's like playing cards with inventors on them. It's kind of fun. Um, so back in 2006, President Obama talked about computer science for the very first time at the National Academies, um, at the um, meeting of the National Center for Women in IT. And I was standing approximately right here and he was standing right over there and um, talked about his two little daughters, who at the time were little. And um, so it was pretty cool that he actually really was the tech president, really thought a lot about science and technology for a long, long time. And um, so we did a whole lot of work, got a lot of things done in a short period of time, and um, really began to significantly move the needle. I don't know if you heard that the AP Computer Science course launch was the biggest launch in history of an AP course. And it was in 2,700 classrooms, 51,000 kids took the test. And that effectively doubled the total number of kids in the country taking an AP computer science course at all to 116. But that's awesome. 500,000 kids take AP calculus. So we're still like 10 times less than we need to be. And the availability of this course is, you know, it's in 2,700 schools. There's 42,000 high schools, so we, we have a long way to go, but it was a good start. Um, and we launched the CS for All Consortium last year. And here we are in our big, this is called the Navy Steps, which is the, um, this building used to be the Department of the Navy, so they call it the Navy Steps. But this is right across from the West Wing. West Wing is where we are sitting right now. And right in this picture, right in the middle, there's me, and to my left is Megan Smith. Do you guys know who Megan Smith is? So Megan was the third CTO of the United States. She was also the 
think she was either the CEO or the CTO of Google X for a while. She's MIT, crazy smart. Um, but she's running all over the country doing something called the Tech Jobs Tour now. So America is hiring. If you look up Tech Jobs Tour, they're stopping in all kinds of cities and doing these big job fairs, which um, they might be coming to a city near you, and they're doing 100 cities in one year. So they're running all over the country, stirring up um, tech. They're actually going to be in St. Louis the same um, period that we're having our event in St. Louis, so we're kind of collaborating on that. Um, really great things came out of this. So this woman on the left in the Native American skirt, they have launched pre-K computational thinking with robots in 19 Head Starts on the Muscogee Creek Nation. So our most disadvantaged kids are getting computational thinking in pre-K, which is just awesome. And um, in the middle, you'll see some Girl Scouts. The Girl Scouts announced that they would add um, computer science badges to their lineup. They now have um, computer science for K through 6, and they have 23 new cybersecurity badges. And they're adding the older girl computer science in the next year. So that's really exciting. Lots and lots of great stuff happened, and it was a really big day. I don't think I'd slept at all. Now, anecdote, that night was the XQ Prize. Have you guys heard of XQ Prize? So basically, um, XQ, which is Emerson Collective, which is Lorraine Powell Jobs Foundation, put up a prize for rethinking the, the, the American high school. And they said, we will give $10 million each to 10 high schools that completely rethink what a high school could be. And so they had a party that night, and they were announcing the winners. So I'm exhausted. I've been up for like a week, but I'm like, I can't skip this party, right? So dragged myself over to the XQ Prize party, and I met MC Hammer and uh, invited him to go bowling at the White House the next day. And um, he didn't show up, but he did say he wanted to. Um, but he was just hanging out there. I'm not sure why, but um, he didn't hurt me. No, he was very nice. Um, but... These were like the most innovative high schools in the nation. Um, some high schools teaching chemistry with VR, like really, really interesting stuff. And um, if you look up XQ Prize, they are um, they had a telethon on on like NBC last Friday that was on TV with lots of conversations about changing education. So the bottom line is, computer science jobs are the number one jobs in the country, number one source of new jobs in the United States. And growing, if you look at state by state, they're usually growing at three to five times faster than the average rate for job growth in any state. So in my state, we have 16,000 open tech jobs. We had around 1,300 graduates last year. And uh, only 12% of our high schools have computer science. So that doesn't seem like a winning formula. <laughs> it seems like a losing formula. Um, so this is a big deal that getting people to understand that in STEM, it's actually, if you look at STEM, 71% of all STEM jobs are in computing. So when you talk about STEM, that's like science, engineering, tech, math, et cetera, biology, medicine, social science, all of that, 71% is computer science, and then all other forms of engineering, and then all other types of medicine and everything else. So... Placing a bet on computer science is a good one. At minimum, you should take a few classes before you graduate um, while they're still included in the price and, um, and have that foundational knowledge because literally every job. I was talking earlier this morning 
in another state, in another time zone at 8 a.m. to the CTO of a company called Centene, which is um, in the top um, 100 insurance providers in the country. They do healthcare insurance. And he said, we are a technology company that does healthcare. Not we're a healthcare company, we're a technology company that does healthcare. Capital One has said, we are a technology company that does banking. And more and more companies are realizing that, that technology and IT is not a cost center, it is the, the revenue generator of your business. And uh, it saves you money. I think healthcare automation and healthcare um, records um, optimization, all of those types of things are gonna be what saves us money and makes all of this possible. So 8% of STEM graduates are in computer science. 71% of jobs, 8% of graduates. So your chances of getting a job are very high, just saying. Um, and um, we really need this trend to change, big time. Um, it actually had declined pretty significantly over the last couple of decades. It started to pop back up. It had gotten, um, in terms of percentage of women, as low as 11% of computer science majors were women. At the height in 1985, it was 37% women. So for whatever reason, there was just this rapid decline. So um, there's been a lot of work to turn that around and we're starting to see it turn around, but um, a big part of that is solving for the whole K-12 thing. So here's what it looks like in Washington State, for those of you that are from here. Um, there are 21,000 open jobs in tech, uh, 1,200 graduates per year. Not great. A um, few years back, have you guys heard of an organization called Washington STEM? So a few years back, um, a bunch of corporations in Seattle realized that even though Washington was number four in tech hiring, like number four in jobs in tech, you were number 48 in graduates nationally. 48. Think about who might be behind you if you're 48. Like Guam, maybe? Like, you know, Alabama? I don't know. Like, so... That basically means the citizens of Washington were becoming the Target and Starbucks workers to serve the out-of-state and out-of-country immigrants that were coming and taking the six-figure tech jobs. Because the jobs were there, but the graduates weren't. So they've really worked to turn that around and it started to grow, but that, um, you know, that's a big disparate number. Um, there's a lot of work going on and there's been some recent changes in the, in the state legislature. Um, 23% of your schools have AP Computer Science, which is pretty good. We only have 12% in Colorado. Um, 1,945 students took the AP exam last year. So sometimes these statistics will really startle people because I, I fly a lot and I end up sitting in first class a lot because I fly so much that I get upgraded. So I'm always sitting next to some business guy and, and he'll ask me what I do and I'm like, oh, I work on you know equity and computer science and so on. He's like, well, my daughter's on her phone all the time doesn't mean she's learning computer science. So, so there's a perception that parents and even in educator, educational administrators think that because computers are in the schools, that kids are learning computer science. And so I had a conversation with a very large school district in a very large city, and they're like, well, you know, we spent $10 million last year on IT, so we, we have computer science. I was like, how much do you spend on buses? Have all your kids learned to drive a bus? Probably not. They learn to ride on a bus. So there's this conflation of using technology for the business of your education 
and actually teaching computation. So there's kind of a history of why this all happened. Um, I'm actually going to skip forward because I've got a better picture for you. Skipping, skipping, skipping. Oh my gosh, did I not include this picture? There's a huge, cute picture of me when I was 13. Okay, it's not here. All right, I'm going back. Okay, so we have um, an entire national effort to get policy changes in computer science, which means it needs to be in the standards, it needs to be something that counts. So back in 2012, when I was chair of Computer Science Education Week, only 10, only 12 states would allow a student to count computer science in high school as a math or a science graduation requirement. 12. It's now 34 states. But like, I would argue that computer science is harder than both math and science, but I think it should count towards graduation, you know, as a, as a requirement. So we've had to change a lot of things. So changing what states think about it, getting standards adopted. There's not very many, I think it's like 14 states have adopted standards. So if it's not part of the standards, then why would a school of education train teachers to teach something? Because there's no certification, so why would you train someone to teach something they can't get certified in? So it's like this chicken and egg theory um, problem. So there's a whole lot of change that has to happen at the policy level, both in states and um, at the national level. And it works once you get it done, but it's very, very hard to do. Um, and so a lot of people are doing this all over the nation to get this done. Now, I am going to skip ahead, but that girl on the left is uh, Miss Black America from last year. She just happened to be at the White House, so I said hi. And the girl on the right was one of my Girl Scout students since, like, 2006. And she's an electrical engineering student at Northwestern. So what is next? What am I up to next? I am working to propagate cs for all nationally. So um, what cs for all means to me, and uh, we published a Medium post on this today called Hello World, and what it means to me is rigorous. Like, it needs to be real discipline, not you sit kids down to play a game on a, on a device, and that's computer science, right? It needs to be a rigorous discipline in which the teacher and the student are in a partnership to learn the science of computation and understand computational thinking, algorithmic thinking, and what is going on behind the scenes and all of the devices that we depend on every day. So it has to be rigorous. It has to be inclusive, meaning we need to design a system that is going to work for everybody. That the system we have had previously was for a certain kind of person with a certain kind of mind, and we've left a lot of people out, and that's cost us in terms of our workforce. Um, and it needs to be sustainable, right? So if it takes massive infusions of cash and resources every year to get this done, it's not going to be sustainable long-term. So we need to build it into the system so it's part of the normal system of education. And I don't want every student to be a computer scientist. I want every student to know enough about it to make an intelligent choice when they go to college about whether or not they want to study this. Like, at this point, roughly 60% of kids in the United States get zero access to any kind of computer science or programming before they graduate high school, which means how could they possibly make a choice about their college major without that knowledge? Um, I mean, can you imagine if you graduated high school without ever having taken a social studies class or a biology class? Like that, that wouldn't make any sense. So um, one thing also that I think is important to understand is everybody talks about STEM, right? STEM, we need STEM, STEM funding, STEM programs. What we're really talking about when we say that is computer science. 
it's not that computer science is more important than other types of STEM, it's that it's missing. Every student takes biology. Every student takes math. Every student takes basic science you know, in high school. You learn about the layers of soil. You learn about all those things. But very, very few students take computer science. And a lot of that has to do with a very interesting fact that um, we designed school before the Industrial Revolution. So back in the late 1700s, like 1780, 1790, a group of, of white dudes got together at Harvard to decide what American students needed to learn, which were mostly men, because that's who went to college, it was only allowed for men to go to college, that young men, the sons of rich people, needed to learn before they went to Harvard, right? So they get together to design high school. Used to be, most people didn't finish high school. Graduating eighth grade used to be a big deal, well into the 1950s. And then high school became a bare minimum, and now it's almost the college is a bare minimum. So we built the US school system designed to educate people in the arts, the sciences, and um, you know, math, the languages, you know, the, the base, basically based on the British system. We didn't include engineering or technology because at that time, all engineering and technology was farming. So if you were going to high school, you'd already learned all those farming skills way back when you were eight or nine, right? Because you're working the farm or someone else was being paid to do that work and you never did it. So we left technology and engineering out of school altogether. So here we go forward like over a hundred years and we've continued to iterate on an educational system that left a big piece out. The world has changed. We had an industrial revolution. We all have electricity and devices and phones and all these things now, yet we're not teaching that fundamental um, understanding in the school system, at, certainly not at scale. So it's an interesting thing to remember. The other thing that's interesting, um, which is why I want to show you the picture of me when I was 13, was that when computers were introduced to the schools in the 1980s, which is probably before most of you were born, all you could do with a computer was program it. There was no software because, so when Steve Jobs created the, the Apple computer, the first you know, personal computer that people could use, there was no software because all software was enterprise. Software was stuff that was big mainframes for big companies. And so they put these computers into the schools and all these kind of early adopter educators grabbed them and started doing things with them. And so I remember in my eighth grade, like kids were writing little programs and you could do like a little bit of programming and make something totally new that no one had ever seen in like a couple hours. But now everything's gotten so sophisticated, right? There are things on your phone that are super, super sophisticated. So for a kid to sit down and make something brand new and exciting that looks better than what's like already everywhere around them, it's a long road. That aha moment has gotten too far away. So there's a lot of efforts underway to, to bring that back with things like Scratch and Robots and Alice and finding ways to, to spark that interest because the really cool power that you get with computer science is that you can create something out of nothing. Um, but in order to hook them, we need that something to be somehow comparable to what they see in the world. And um, that is a challenge. So we're working to propagate this nationally um, and um, support all kinds of new school districts coming in to do the work, new organizations coming in to do the work. So um, just last week I met with KinderCare, the daycare system. And they were like, we're thinking about adding coding to our daycares. I'm like, great. 
Let's talk about that because they have 170,000 kids going to daycare every day in kinder care. So great. I would love it for them to do that um, and find ways to solve problems using some of the networks and things that we already have. Um, I'm looking for good solutions. Did I spell scout? No, it's okay. So one of the things we're doing next month is we're going to St. Louis and we're having this big event. I kind of compare it to like the Clinton Global Initiative, but just for computer science. We're inviting all these people to come and announce new things they're doing. But a big focus is rural and small communities. So I said this to the group at dinner that in the United States there are 50 million kids. 20 million of them go to 1,000 school districts. So big school districts. 30 million go to 14,000 school districts. So this is a really different problem to solve. How do you teach computer science to kids distributed across 14,000 districts? Because, you know, if LA public schools decide they want computer science, they hire a team of about five people, they distribute across the system, they build it out. But how do you do that in these little tiny school districts all over the nation? So when we go to um, St. Louis, one of the things we're going to do is highlight and lift up really innovative approaches to how do you bring computer science to places that don't have broadband? How do you bring computer science to places that are remote, that don't have access to the kinds of mentors and um, job shadowing and things that happen in bigger cities? Um, there's also something that I think about a lot, what I call ethical scale. So um, how do I anonymize the story? Okay, so I um, met some folks who were really excited about a project that they were doing. And they were like, we have this awesome project. We went to this high school. There was no good physics. So we decided we had to do something about it. So I built a nuclear reactor in my basement. And now kids come over and do experiments at my house. And it's great, and the FBI has checked it out, it's fine, we're all fine. And I'm trying to raise some money, $5 million, to scale this up so we can serve more kids. And I was like, well, how many kids do you think you could serve if you scaled it up? He's like, well, we need to build a facility and so on. He's like, I think we could serve 60 kids. It's like, beyond the issues of you have a nuclear reactor in your basement, um, what is the ethics of spending that much money to educate 60 kids versus... Could you invest that money in a different way and educate vastly more kids? And so I think about as people are creating efforts, and in many, many cases, people with good hearts will be like, I'm going to solve this problem. Damn it, nobody is doing anything about it. I'm going to go solve it. So I'm going to create a program. And they kind of jump to the solution, and they don't do the research to figure out, like, is that the best solution? They just, like, jump to the solution. So... If you were launching a startup, anyone done a startup here? Most startup people? Come on, people. This is Washington. Okay. So you're launching a startup, and you've got to invest $100,000 of your own money. You're going to work your butt off to make sure that you have a market opportunity, that your thing is real, that somebody else didn't already do it, right? But people will launch nonprofits and educational initiatives all the time, not do any research, just be like, this is an idea I have, and I have to do it, and so you should pay, give me the money, and I'm going to do it. And so we end up with these little tiny solutions all over the place, which I compare to, like, Radio Shack, right? So over here we have Amazon, where you could distribute all this education through things like the Girl Scouts and the Boys and Girls Club and 4-H and the places where kids already are. But meanwhile, people are building, you know, Radio Shacks over here. And you can serve vastly more kids 
in the Amazon model than you can serve over here. So I'm really asking people as they are designing initiatives to think about like, are there barriers built into the design of my program? Are there actual physical barriers like transportation? Are there cultural barriers like a sense of belonging for the students? And if there are, think through what your workaround is before you try to scale it up. And how much does it cost? If it costs more than $1,000 a kid to do it, you shouldn't do it, bottom line. Because there's other solutions that can scale and, and do as good or almost as good a job at, and serve a lot more kids. So I'm really excited about what the Girl Scouts is doing, what 4-H is doing, the Boys and Girls Club. These are places where collectively, if you take the big six Youth organizations, that's 20 million kids right there that we can reach all over the United States in every zip code. So um, figuring out like how do we make solutions that are going to really be inclusive is, is something I spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, and then it's all about measurement, right? You have to, if it doesn't, if you don't count it, it doesn't count. So on Monday, you guys, I'll note this down. We are hosting a national phone call on computer science education and the very special guest, which I cannot reveal, I'll just say, if you miss this phone call, it would be like missing the eclipse. You will be sorry. So just write it down, call the number on Monday at new, uh, 11 your time. Um, it's gonna be recorded too. So um, that's happening on Monday. We're gonna have a big briefing nationally to talk about what's going on in computer science education and how we can all collectively solve this because I really, really think that um, this is like our space race, right? Like we as a country need to come together. We're gonna to compete globally with countries that are producing three times the engineering workforce that we are. And one little data point that I think is really interesting, you know that something like 70% of PhDs in, in STEM fields in the United States are going to non-Americans. So our top universities granting PhDs to non-Americans and then because of our somewhat broken immigration system, when they graduate, we kick them out of the country. So we spend a bunch of our money and resources to educate them, and they'll be like, bye. If you don't get a job, get out. That's crazy, right? When I graduated from Oxford University, I was offered an automatic two-year work permit in the UK. Why would you allow someone to be educated using your resources and then throw them out of your country and not you know, try to leverage that investment? It's really crazy. So. Um, we need the intellectual property of the United States to remain part of our economy. And when the vast majority of graduate students in science and technology research are not Americans, there's a significant risk that that intellectual property leaves. Um, the other thing that's really significant is we have a vastly aging defense workforce. So you cannot work in defense, you cannot work for a defense contractor if you are not American. Um, and in fact, if you have not gone through quite a rigorous process of being vetted. So the defense department is competing with Google for employees. They're competing with everybody, but they, can, they have to compete with a tiny piece of the pie. So for us as a country, um, the average age in defense and national research is somewhere around 45 right now. So we're gonna have a lot of people retire and we don't have much of a pipeline of people to get there. So there's a really significant need to change this um, join this phone call. So on the 17th, 16th and 17th of October, but I would say tune in on the 17th, 
We will live stream the National Summit on CS for All, and we have lots of exciting things happening, including Megan Smith interviewing the, um, the uh, CEO of Cartoon Network, and um, a bunch of other stuff. Illuminate, who won Nash, um, America's Got Talent, will be on. So lots of fun things happening, and you can tune in at any point to watch that live stream. It'll also be archived, and um, maybe someday I will run into someone on the street. It's like, I saw you on this live stream. So this photo was the 100-day photo. So 100 days before the end of the presidential administration, President Obama invited us all out for a glass of wine on the lawn. And so I'm... I'm Right there, over on the right there. It's a girl in a white shirt, and I'm standing right behind her. That's Maya. She's head of data science at, and behavioral insights at Google now. Um, so this was about the remaining people. The total staff in the White House was about 1,100 people at its peak, and then it winnowed down towards the end. Um, probably the smartest group of people I've ever worked with, absolutely. And it was absolutely the most inclusive environment I've ever been in. So almost every day, we had this janitor who was a, a woman who was deaf. And she was probably in her 30s, blonde. And um, she would come in to pick up the garbage and stuff. And I didn't really know she was deaf. And I would talk to her, and she would always kind of ignore me. But I realized later that she was deaf. And across the hall from my office was the Office of Presidential Correspondence. <coughs> so this is a pretty important office. They receive every letter. They respond to the letters on behalf of the president. They choose which letters the president is going to read every night because he would read about 15 letters a night. And um, the guy who worked there was also deaf. He had a cochlear implant. And every single day she would come around and she would stop in front of his office and he would stop, step out and they would have a silent conversation across the hall every day. And I would walk by and I'd see it. And here's this man in a full three-piece business suit in one of the most important jobs in the White House and he's talking every single day to the janitor. And I just thought it was really cool. Also, the White House receptionist is, was deaf. She worked the entire eight years as a receptionist in the West Wing. And there's a really great um, YouTube video of her giving a tour of the West Wing. And um, she was deaf, and they um, built the technology systems and supports they needed for her to be able to do that job. And um, it was really, really cool. So I'm happy to take all kinds of questions and answer things. And um, thank you.